Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Joshua Specht. He's a visiting assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame and the author of a new book called Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. It's out now through Princeton University Press. Joshua Specht, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. So before we get started, Josh, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. Uh, So I am currently a lecturer at Monash University, as well as a visiting assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, But as far as what I do, I think of myself geographically as a scholar of the American West, in terms of what I look at, some sort of combination of environmental history and business history would be a way to describe it. Okay. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write Red Meat Republic? What was the inspiration behind this book? Well, I'd like to say there was some, you know, grand life-spanning vision, but I think when I was, you know, this this started uh, way back in in grad school, and when I was trying to think of a a book topic, someone gave me a very useful piece of advice, which was, anything you pick, you're going to be sick of it by the end. So try to do something you're not going to get bored with. And so I had had this existing interest in food production. I'd been reading about it, just curious about how we produce our food. And what I realized is there wasn't a really good... There was a good historical literature, but not a book that kind of put it all together. And so I thought, hey, there's an opportunity. I already read about this for fun. Might as well go with it. (laughs) Great. So why don't we just jump straight into the book? You know, in your introduction, you write that America made modern beef at the same time that beef made America modern. What do you mean by that? So I think what I was trying to convey um, is, so, so biggest picture, the book traces how Americans rich and poor came to expect cheap affordable, high-quality, fresh beef uh, by the end of the late by the late 19th century. What I mean by, you know, America making modern beef and beef making America modern is that in a way, the United States pioneered a model for uh, kind of industrial beef production, and it's influential in all kinds of agriculture. And that was a model that was predicated on, first of all, food processors kind of dominating the process. So meat packers capturing most of the value of the food dollar. Their system being highly centralized in the hand power being concentrated in the hands of just a few companies, uh, four key ones in my story. And then the other thing is that low costs used to justify everything else in the system. So low costs for consumers would be the kind of organizing principle for everything. And so in a way, the United States in the late 19th century pioneered that model of industrial beef. That's the half of it. The other half, though, is that in telling the story of, of this rise of industrial beef, I think this is, I saw kind of all the things that we think of as, as transformations in the United States were shaped by beef. So I think American power in the West. I think cattle were both a tool of and a justification for the dispossession of American Indian land. So there's one example. Uh, cattle were the foundation of economic power, uh, along with things like mining, particularly in the, the mid to late 19th century in the West. Similarly, uh, if, if we can argue that there's something about American identity that was rooted in the American West, well, cattle and ranching and cowboys were at the center of that. But also, and I'll just wrap up on this point, 
is the emergence of the modern uh, regulatory state was very much rooted in this story of distributing beef. So antitrust law covered both railroad policy and the power of the Chicago meatpackers. Uh, federal investigations of meatpacking served the foundation of, of federal oversight. And then sanitary inspection was all about beef. So in all these different ways, we see how the American state and American society were shaped by beef. So one term that you use is the cattle beef complex. Um, and it's a term that you've coined. Could you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Yeah. So maybe I should, should back up about that a bit. I've, you know, since, since writing the book, I've, I've kind of thought a bit about how much to push this. The idea I wanted to convey is that this isn't simply a story about business, right? The things putting beef on the American dinner table, it's not just a story of clever business people, of how a slaughterhouse works, or of cattle ranchers. What's keeping beef on the American dinner table and also kind of shaping it are all sorts of things. So everything ranging from Western ecosystems that support cattle to the image of the cowboy kind of helping justify that system to the cultural meanings of beef to hungry workers in Detroit or New York. And I wanted a term that would capture both the production and consumption of beef in its totality. And so I, I realized there wasn't really a good word for it. So I tried to coin my own. And so I came up with this phrase, the cattle beef complex. And what that really is, is the set of institutions and practices keeping beef on the American table. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, to dive into that more, you know, you call this a hoof to table history of beef, but you open with land expropriation, um, indigenous lands in the West. Um, what's the role here for violence of the Indian wars in the cattle beef complex? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, so the first chapter is called War, and it tells this story of, of land dispossession. And originally, when I was starting to write the book, I really thought that would be like a minor piece of the introduction, setting some context, um, because, you know, the land has to come from somewhere. Um, and I already was kind of decided I was going to trouble the convenient story of like railroads and refrigeration and just say, well, the land had to come from somewhere. But then I started to realize that you know, this story of of taking land was central to making this system possible. And yet business histories or stories about food production didn't really prioritize that, didn't prioritize the remaking of, of Western ecosystems from essentially American Indian horses and, and the hunt of the bison to one of uh, often Euro-American ranchers, horses, and cattle. And so I thought, well, I got to tell that story. And, and, and none of this would have would have been possible without the land, but also Western policy more broadly. So first I talk about warfare and I talk about how cattle and cattle ranchers are kind of participating in micro processes of land taking and conflict that precipitate the high level, you know, what we know as the Indian wars. But then I talk about the reservation system and how a system of a corrupt system of distributing beef to reservations was a valuable outlet for cattle ranchers. Juicy government contracts helped keep them in business, and helped kickstart the Western ranching industry. And so these processes of war and dispossession are what make industrial beef possible today. And while that story is obviously long gone now, I think that kind of violence we can see in all sorts of these systems. And I think we have to think about that process when we talk about any industrial system, even one that's far removed from its kind of violent origins. Yeah. I mean, it's a really crucial insight. And you know, one of the outcomes of that is the rise of these large corporate ranchers and actually the fall of those large corporate ranchers too. And you say at one point that food production would actually probably look a lot different uh, if that hadn't happened. Um, how so? What do you mean? Sure. So, okay. So at the beginning of the book, I talk about this process of land dispossession. I talk about early cattle ranching being relatively small scale. 
But after that's kind of achieved, I tell the story uh, about how in the late 1870s, early 1880s, these vast corporate ranches were organized across the West that would build these massive herds of 100,000 animals. And they would take investment capital from the eastern United States and as far away as Scotland. And this was really making ranching into like big business. And what I asked myself was like, well, we don't, we see some corporate ranches today, but they're not really the most powerful players in the supply chain. The meat processors, the meat packers dominate. And I thought, well, why didn't ranching end up being business? And why couldn't they be? I think if, if ranchers dominated the supply chain, we might distribute our food differently. The places it travels through might be different. Um, I think it might be more integrated across the totality of the system, but that wasn't possible. And what I argue in the book is that in a way, ranching as huge corporate business dominating the supply chain wouldn't have been possible. Because what I, I look at how ranching kind of worked on the ground in the 19th century, and I argue that the micro needs of ranching in the 19th century and the macro needs of capital collide, right? Investors want reliable business. They want precision. They want predictability. 19th century ranching is a very kind of fuzzy proposition. It's very hands-off. You let cattle scatter far and wide. You let them take care of themselves. And that entails a lot of risk. And so what I try to say there is that this sets creates a very unstable system. And this 1880s corporate ranching was not sustainable. Ultimately, the whole system blows up just when the Chicago meatpackers are getting powerful, and they basically make it impossible for ranches to get as big as they used to be. And so it's it's partially explaining why Chicago meatpacking becomes so central. Right, right. But I mean, the culture of that ranching persists, right? You actually call it a foundation myth uh, for the cattle beef complex. Um, how does that work? How's this sort of culture remaining or growing um, at the same time that the industry, the large corporate industry is collapsing? Yeah. Um, I should have gotten into that into that answer just now because I think that's important. If if ranching had stayed this kind of huge business along the lines of the 1880s, they wouldn't have had this romantic idea of what cattle ranching is like that emerges actually in the aftermath of the failure of corporate ranching. So once corporate ranching kind of blows up in the, in the late 1880s as a consequence of some disastrous winters and some instability, um, and I try to argue this really is as much a financial phenomenon as, a, as an environmental one. But in the aftermath of that, smaller scale ranchers develop a critique of corporate ranching. They basically say this has gotten away from, from, you know, from being close to the land. This is too greedy. This isn't a kind of honest way to make a living. And so it's not that these, these later ranchers that are relatively small scale, family organized, it's not that they're anti-capitalist, but in some sense, they, they present themselves as being non-capitalist. They represent a simpler romantic period in American development. And they create a myth that at the same time, they're becoming central to this whole very industrial meatpacking operation headquartered in Chicago. Those Chicago meatpackers can play on those assumptions about cowboys and about ranching. And so we get this system of industrial beef that presents itself with the romantic vision that those ranchers develop. And so I think those two sides of the coin need each other. Um, and so that's how we get this kind of industrial but romantic food system. Right. So, I mean, out of this whole story is the rise of uh, the sh packing industry in Chicago, the slaughterhouses. Um, how do they come to dominate the story, the system? Well, I think it's it's uh, like, all, like all things, a combination of skill and luck. Um, so the first thing is they're very savvy about how they do things. So they 
they come around in Chicago at a time when the nation's rail networks, particularly in the aftermath of the American Civil War, are headquartered in Chicago, a time when during the Civil War, massive government contracts had kind of increased the scale of business and accelerated the expansion of markets. And so they start to distribute widely. They have huge amounts of business and they have huge amounts of commodities flowing into a city like Chicago as the nation's rail network matures. So they've got the means. But the other thing that happens is the timing point, which is that corporate ranching blows up in the late 1880s and all these businesses start to go under and they start flooding the markets with cheap cattle at the exact moment the Chicago meatpackers are trying to scale up their operations in the late 1880s. And all of a sudden they have all this cheap beef. They're starting to push into nationwide distribution and now they have the means to outcompete everyone. And so they kind of grow into the most powerful parts of the story between the mid-1880s and the early 1890s. And from then on, they have a chokehold on the system. They bankrupt local butchers who might oppose them. And if ranchers ever try to develop their own meatpacking facilities, the meatpackers work with the railroads to essentially crush any opposition. The meatpackers also realize that rather than competing with each other, so I talk about companies like Armour and Company, Swift and Company, rather than competing with each other, they can kind of collude or not really compete and instead put pressure on their suppliers and their buyers to find more value in those directions. That becomes key to their model too. And the story of workers and labor, that's sort of a famously important piece of the packing story. And you get into that a little bit in your book. Could you talk a little more about how that piece is fitting in here? Yeah. So one of the goals of the book, and I think we can get into this in in a bit more, is I want to look at kind of big abstract processes and changes and how those connect to human struggles. And and so what do I mean by that? Well, there's a story of the Chicago meatpackers' power that emphasizes the brilliance of the uh, slaughtering process. So the Chicago meatpackers actually pioneer the assembly line idea in some ways. I mean, they don't invent it, but they kind of are are key players in this. So in Henry Ford's memoirs, he talks about having his idea for his assembly line from watching a side of beef be taken apart in Chicago. And so the meatpackers pioneered a disassembly line. They broke it into individual tasks. They synchronized workers. They used strategies like paying some workers more to go faster to force everyone to keep up. They pioneered all these, these kind of innovative business ideas. But of course, this is about manipulating and controlling people. And so you have to tell this story of slaughterhouse workers. Like I tell the story of a young boy named Vincenzo Rutkowski, who's maimed while working in a slaughterhouse. We have to see how the exploitations of workers like Vincenzo go hand in hand with the innovations of late 19th century business. And so my book is trying to balance both those stories and say you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, too, we're also seeing the rise of these consumer movements. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of reforms they're fighting for and what these kind of consumer relationships to food, how they're changing, what they're becoming? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I struggled with as I was writing and conceptualizing the book is people were eating so much more beef in the late 19th century. And I tried to think, well, surely what it meant to people must have changed. And by the way, this is going to come around to your question. Surely what this meant to people must have changed, or like the meatpackers must have convinced people to eat more beef. But as I started reading about it, what I realized is it, beef, it didn't, beef's meaning to people did not change in the late 19th century. Rather, it was considered a special occasion food, and it became an all-the-time kind of food. And so for all sorts of Americans, workers, recent immigrants, beef became a yardstick to measure their progress. So in the labor movement, they often talked about the ability of a worker to afford 
a quality cut of beef as being a symbol of their power and success. Similarly, rich Americans became concerned that poorer Americans were spending too much and having expectations that were too high for their beef. And so what I saw was beef took on all these cultural meanings. And those cultural meanings meant if people are basically happy with their beef, they don't worry about the rest of the production story, the backstory to their beef. And so what I noticed is the thing that got people worked up and that sparked consumer movements were questions of price and questions of sanitation. If people couldn't afford the beef that was their yardstick of progress, or if they were worried it was going to poison them, they'd act out. So I, I talk in, in the early 20th century about a few different meat riots in which people smashed windows, you know, pelted shopkeepers because they were mad that they couldn't afford their beef. And what I'm trying to say there is it wasn't just a question of calories, right? They could it's not that they wanted to they could just switch to fish or even worse, a potato or something, right? It's that it's that beef beef was the thing they wanted. And so consumers would mobilize around those two factors. Similarly, um, when people start to become concerned about sanitation, they push for federal intervention and oversight. And so the dynamics of of what beef means to people and how they relate to it would ultimately shape the industry because the meat packers know that if they can provide cheap sanitary beef to people, no one is going to ask any other questions. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking too about how this book begins in the American West, it moves to Chicago, uh, but it's a lot of these consumer movements that's actually sort of drawing sort of national uh, attention to these industries. Can you talk a little bit more about where these food rights are happening, who's involved in them, and how they're relating to these broader um, interconnections of the cattle beef complex? Yeah. So I think the consumer movements – so I mean broadly the story is at the end, people are eating the Chicago-dressed beef all over America. But of course, the, the largest quantities in terms of concentration are being consumed in major cities, particularly on the eastern seaboard. I mean in Chicago. And so in terms of engagement and protest, you know, I'm talking about things that are happening in New York. Um, I, t- I think I talk a bit about something happening in Baltimore, Boston, but, but really it's, it's places like that in New York. And, but those are also places, of course, that are centers of political power, right? And so at the same time people are protesting in cities, they're starting to push for action in Washington. Similarly, networks of local butchers across the country start to cooperate, and that they sort of interact with consumers to create protests against Chicago beef. Uh, they're not that successful because the public, it turns out, is just cares about prices, not how the food was produced. But that those networks are about people communicating in Midwestern cities, smaller towns all across the country. Um, with all of these movements, of course, the media, the press is very important for circulating these things. Um, and then just in general, levers of political power, people talking to politicians, people pushing for investigations. The one thing I would say is that throughout the story, I try to trace moments of cooperation between consumers and critical producers. So traditional wholesale butchers who are going bankrupt, they try to to organize alongside consumers. And my book, in a sense, is a critique of consumer politics because what I say is basically uh, these alliances don't work. So they're very optic about cooperating, but then for whatever reason, these movements fall apart because people really care about prices. And so in a way, my book is talking about the impossibility of a really effective or the difficulty of a really effective consumer politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, a major intervention in the book, in my opinion, right, is that you bring the story down to the ground, uh, not just looking at the large industrial system, but the everyday infighting and mm-hmm. struggles and plots in these different places. Um, why is that so important? And, and what do you think it reveals 
that maybe other analyses, particularly business analyses that have focused a lot on sort of very abstract systems, uh, have missed or obscured? Yeah. So I've I've thought about this a bit. Um, in some way, I think that historians have a good understanding of some of the kind of big abstract processes that shape life in the in the late 19th century. So processes of standardization, the emergence of the regulatory state. Um, but I think that the the explanation for how or why that happened has is a bit more fuzzy, right? It, it's been it is. It hasn't even really been a top-down perspective. It's more that scholarship on this has just kind of traced these processes without explaining them. And so, I want to develop a theory of how these things happen, and that. And so, instead of looking at, at the kind of big processes of abstraction and how they shape things on the ground, I want to start on the ground and build up to abstraction. And so, what's what's an example? Well, I just was talking to you about the failure of corporate ranching. And so in that, I try to argue ranching could not become a big business in the late 19th century because of how the micro-level processes of ranching worked, how you actually managed a cattle ranch, how you kept track of your herd, how you fed your animals. That's on the ground, and I look at a bunch of different ranches across the West. But if you aggregate all those tensions and and difficulties, that builds up and, and, and creates attention with the macro needs of, of investment capital. And so this process, the, the failure of ranching is rooted in those struggles. Another example, standardization across a national market. That's a big abstract process. Well, in the book, I try to trace rivalries between Kansas cattle towns and show that in competing for business in Texas and real struggles between these towns to attract the cattle trade, all these towns start to look the same because they all want to appeal to people far away. So they try to be reliable. They try to be familiar. And in the end, by competing with each other, they've actually standardized themselves. And, and, and once we aggregate all those interactions, we get standardization. So throughout the book, my method has been to start with human ground level struggles and then explain abstraction. Now, does that change how we think about the processes of abstraction? Um, well, first, I think there's this contribution in terms of explaining the how this happened, but I think it does. I think, for instance, um, when you see that tension between the micro practices of ranching and the macro needs of capital, you understand differently the way the relationship between, say, industrial agriculture and the natural world, which is that producers on the ground shoulder much of the ecological risk and profit and investment are found in things like middlemen and processors. I think you wouldn't appreciate that as much without understanding that kind of on the ground process. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the great insights, I think, of the book. And it does get me wondering, you know, you're intervening with a very, a lot of very classic literatures in the historiography. Um, what, if anything, surprised you the most when you were working on this book, mm-hmm. either in terms of the research or either in terms of the writing or just the interpretive analyses, what got you thinking in maybe a whole different way? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'll give you two things. I mean, one is going to be a, a kind of a genuine answer to your question, and the other is going to be a bit of a dodge. So I'll at least give you the, 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 the straight-up answer. I think the importance of that first chapter on war to what I thought was going to be a very business-centered story um, was important. That surprised me. I didn't realize just how much we had to think not only about where, how the land was acquired and where it came from, but kind of the ongoing meaning of that act of dispossession and violence uh, with Native peoples in the U.S. And so that surprised me. The, the other thing that surprised me is, is, is not quite about the insights of the book. It's just the experience of writing a book. And I'd be curious to hear from other people or maybe your experience with your dissertation. Like, 
one of the things with this book is it was the most kind of people-centered piece of writing I've done. I spent a lot of time in archives interacting with stories and diaries from specific people. And often I would conclude, I would try to wonder, is this person representative of something broader or are they atypical? Are they unusual? And what I realized, I kind of gained a new appreciation for just how strange almost every person is in the world. Like every person had some weird, unusual wrinkle that made them like really a character. So I talk, I talk about, you know, there's this cowboy named Way Hamlin Uptograph, who I write about a lot, and just his sense of humor is hilarious. And I thought, well, maybe that's just him. But then it seemed like every person I look at had some wrinkle like that. So this guy, William Somerville, who's a, the man, manager of the Matador Ranch, he's like a giant hypochondriac. And that's not that important to my story. But every 10th letter, though, or so, something about his hypochondria comes up, and it's just kind of funny and strange. I thought, well, that guy's kind of weird too. What does that have to do with? And so I kept accumulating all these stories, and I realized like once you take people on their own terms, no one fits the kind of standard imagined person. As historians, we can sometimes fall back on. And so I thought that was kind of funny and strange. No, I mean, I think that's a great observation. Um, and actually, since you asked, I mean, in my own work, I think I take a very similar approach to having these kind of bottom-up analyses of very abstract concepts like energy systems. Right. I think the most surprising is that, you know, I start off with the background in labor history. Mm -hmm. um, but in my source analyses, it's oftentimes these sort of these mine managers, these executives who have these very outsized personalities yeah. uh, that almost makes them magnetic. You know, as, as a researcher, you want to find out more about them and you always want to quote them because they have something completely uh, off the wall to say. Yeah. And they can almost start to dominate yeah, your work. Yeah, for sure. I've struggled with that too. And it's kind of like, you don't want this. Some, some people are almost like a black hole. Like you start to think about them and they just eat up more and more of your page. But then also it's like, you do want some of that personality of people because it a, is fun for the reader. And also just, it, it makes you realize these are all humans, not just like forces for the unfolding of history. And so I know that's something I really like. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think having those people in and of itself in your work is itself making, um, an argument um, by emphasizing their stories uh, in your writing th that these people matter, yeah. especially within these abstract forces. Well, you know, Josh, it's been great to have you on to talk about Red Meat Republic. Um, I do want to ask you, since we have you, and before I let you go, um, if there's anything that you're working on next, if there's any, I know this book just came out, but if there's anything that's starting to mm -hmm. come to the fore of your mind at this point? Ah, uh, hmm. Well, I don't have any good ideas. Maybe you got some for me. I think it's, you know, it's hard. Uh, I've been doing some thinking. Um, I would say that one of the things I found interesting as I was doing the book, and I think I'm hoping that the way to get a new book idea is to like think about the previous one, is um, I, I hadn't quite figured out what what I even mean when in this conversation I've been throwing on words like a market or what a market is or how it works or what it means. And I've also noticed in all sorts of places in my story, people were at times excited about the possibility of some abstract market, but usually they felt frustrated and burned by it. And so I want to think about what the market was or meant to people in the American West, what it meant to their environments, and, and why they so often ultimately felt victims of whatever this weird abstract thing is. I don't have an answer for how to do that. <laughs> um, I think looking at some of these cattle towns in Kansas I wrote about, looking at where railroads go, um, as Richard White calls like the spatial politics of railroads, that kind of stuff maybe. But I want to I wanna think about the intersection between community, markets, and environments in the West and, and understand that story. 
but I can't be more specific because I don't haven't actually figured it out. And probably in a month, I'd say something totally different. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a great point, though. I mean, you're talking about dissecting abstractions that we oftentimes don't even necessarily consider abstractions within our everyday, uh, like the term market. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm super guilty of that, by the way, and in the book as well, not just this conversation. I mean, we all to some degree, which is why that critical analysis is so important. Yeah. So Josh, you know, I really want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. His new book, Red Meat Republic, A Hoof to Table History of How Beef Changed America, is out now through Princeton University Press. So thanks, Josh, uh, and we hope to have you back again soon, okay? Thanks so much, Ryan. It was a real, pl- real pleasure. Okay, you have a great day. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.